Welcome to the Inside Angle podcast from 3M Health Information Systems. I'm your host, Gordon Moore, and today I'm talking with Pablo Brown Rodriguez, who's the Senior Executive at SEIU 775 Benefits Group, leading innovation and product development across training, healthcare, and retirement, and Leslie Phillips as the Director of Population Health and Safety Services at the SEIU 775 Benefits Group. SEIU 775 Benefits Group is the nation's leading organization dedicated to improving the skills, health, and sustainability of the home care workforce. Welcome, Pablo and Leslie. Thanks, Gordon. Really happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much for coming. I was fascinated when I was at the State of Reform meeting in Seattle a month or so ago when I heard you, Pablo, on a panel talking about how you guys are working with your members and doing incredibly respectful analysis of what it is that's likely to get between them and good healthcare outcomes beyond just the medical conditions. You guys work with a top-notch medical delivery organization. And so you're then laying on top of that other things that get at other social factors and things that are likely to help your members get to better outcomes. Fascinating to me, and I think an incredible model for how healthcare delivery organizations can think outside the box, think beyond just treating diseases, and think about asking people what is likely to get between them and outcomes and thinking about creating services and using technology to meet those needs and help people get to better outcomes. So that's, that's why I wanted to speak with you guys today. And so what I'd like to start with is just for listeners, could you tell me what is SEIU? Yeah, absolutely. So SEIU is actually the union that has fought for and collectively bargained the benefits that we actually deliver to home care workers, and and SEIU 775 specifically, to home care workers in Washington State. Excellent. And what's the benefits group? The benefits group is the set of trusts that deliver training, health, and retirement services to those home care workers. And tell me, as I, as I think about home care workers, obviously there's a burgeoning need for that as we think about the aging baby boomer population as more people being treated in the home, uh, both with professional workers as well as family caregivers in the home. Do you guys work across that entire spectrum? Yeah, we've got, we've got a number of different types of providers, parent providers, uh, adult children providers. We've got, you know, just individual providers that are really interested in this kind of care over the long term and wanting to serve a number of different types of clients, but they're predominantly servicing the Medicaid market. About how many people are you talking about as your members? So roughly our population is about 50,000. So it's, it's a huge, huge organization servicing. And if you think about the number of lives that we're touching, it's not just our home care workers, but then the folks that they're serving. So, so really, we've got this huge population that we have the ability to impact. And we really feel a deep sense of responsibility to that and actually learning how do we help to overcome some of the barriers to long-term care, um, especially, as you mentioned, with the aging populations. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned it's not just the uh, member that you're benefiting when you think about taking care of the members who are providing services, but obviously the people who are receiving the primary care from those individuals in the home, so that if you help that individual be better and more whole, they're obviously better able to care for people. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been pretty fascinating. It's been really interesting to think about this as sort of the virtuous cycle between home care worker and client. And, you know, we're sort of at the intersection of that, both in regards to training and our, our health program, our health insurance. And we're sort of in this really unique position where, you know, we are actually 
training healthcare workers that we are providing healthcare for. So we've got this amazing opportunity to actually be able to learn from them and partner with our home care workers to understand their needs, understand the population, and then ultimately to, uh, to circle it back around to early interventions through training and, and simultaneously um, great population health work. Gordon, I think you point out rightly so that these workers are in those homes caring for other people. And I think that's something really interesting about home care workers. And of course, it's a huge population and very heterogeneous. But one defining theme is generosity and the generosity in the way in which they care for their clients. So much caregiving going on. And we're in the unique position to think about helping them care for themselves. And that's been really, really fascinating work. So what is it that got SEIU 775 Benefits Group into this kind of work? It sort of starts with the story of the, of the union, SEIU 775, and, uh, and really looking at the need to help serve this population and that in order for this population in particular to be able to actually do an effective job, one of the biggest challenges in the nation right now generally is that you've got about a 60% on average annual turnover of home care workers that enter into the field. And so when we go out and we you know, do a lot of generative research, what we understand is that people predominantly feel overwhelmed and underprepared to do the work that they're being asked to do. And so I think the union really saw this as a particular need and wanted to organize and help these home care workers to fight for better wages, to help professionalize the field, and uh, understanding that this is a big social problem that you know, somebody's got to figure out how to address. And ultimately, that led to the creation of the benefits group. And we got the privilege and opportunity to actually be the organization that's executing on that vision and helping to provide care for home care workers. Yeah, and that execution is so many things. There are other trusts that work in the space we work in that really serve as more of a a pass-through in delivering those benefits. And we have a very robust health care program for workers who are eligible and sign up for our insurance programs are really geared towards low-wage workers and very comprehensive. And then the focus of my department is really the health beyond the doctor's office. For those home care workers who are eligible and on our plan or are not, how can we deliver services that are really focused on their well-being? You know, as I think about it, you guys mentioned health insurance, and I'm imagining you guys are self-insured and that therefore there's also the potential benefit in reducing unnecessary health care costs to this kind of work? Absolutely. Yeah, we, we moved over to being self-insured, and that was a huge lift for us. But, you know, we really tried to go beyond that. We did realize that we wanted to be more than a performance-based provider contracting and leveraging vendors to deliver health programs. So we really focused, again, on just partnering with our community of caregivers to shape programs that meet their unique needs. And so a lot of what we're doing is spending time with them, using uh, principles of agile development methodologies, and kind of going through a systematic approach of saying, hey, let's research some of these areas that we can see that there are trending health needs that are uncommon or uncommonly high compared to the general population. And if there's sufficient evidence to say that we can actually create an intervention strategy, how do we actually design a pilot, figure out if that's going to work, and be pretty nimble about failing fast and understanding that we need to throw a lot of things at the wall to understand what's going to actually work. And then once we start seeing things that work, you know, this is where Leslie and her team and the expertise really comes in is we actually do a lot of that research, gather the evidence, and then start scaling some of these pilots to actually serve as, as benefits to the population. 
I jokingly refer to it as lean epidemiology. So I'm an <laughs> epidemiologist by, by training, and so my background really is in research, but research more focused on federal grants and grant cycles and certain research methodologies. And when I came to the benefits group, I learned about lean startup methodologies, which are just what Pablo was describing, sort of getting in, talking to the population, figuring out the problem, finding the minimal way to deliver on something we think can address the problem and and getting a signal. And so it's really been building it from the ground up. Some of the work we do is really very just formative feasibility and acceptability. So for instance, in the safety domain, home care workers do physically taxing tasks like lifting and transferring clients routinely. And so when they do those tasks, it's no surprise that they they get injured. And for those types of musculoskeletal overexertion type injuries, we see five times the rate of injury as the national average. So we're very concerned about that. And it's a difficult problem to solve. Um, There's a whole system of durable medical equipment that works sometimes for home care and not in others. It's not like being in a hospital where you can have a lift on the ceiling. And so we've been testing some portable, we call them low-tech tools, things that can be put in the mail. Um, An example of this is something that looks like a, a lazy Susan. Essentially, one of the risky motions that a home care worker or any worker who is in that kind of healthcare home care space can do is twisting while lifting. And so a client can sit on the rotation cushion and the worker can twist them and then lift them to separate those tasks. And we don't actually know if that will reduce injury, but before we even test that, we're testing if we send the rotation cushion out. Is it received at the home? Is it open? Is it used? Or is it gathering dust? And so some of our work is really just at that stage of is it feasible and is it acceptable? That is so impressive to me, the degree to which you guys are driven by science and understanding and also understanding process. To me, that sounds like a highly probable pathway to success I remember reading some of the materials you had sent in advance that talks about how you have gotten into understanding the needs and issues facing your members. We want to delve into some more of that and and where you get information and how you bring that inside and start to analyze it. Yeah, that's a great question. We have a variety of sources. So, you know, like many who are doing research, there's a whole body of literature out there published and peer-reviewed, and we're certainly looking at that. But we've run into barriers with that. It can't take us all the way, partly because our population is is so unique, and so some of the findings out there are perhaps not generalizable. We want to make sure they work for home care workers in Washington State. And the second part is some of these questions just haven't been asked of any population, especially some of those those questions around safety and reducing injuries. Um, So we take a variety of approaches. After we look at the literature, we want to ask our population about how how they feel, what they're doing, what they're seeing on a day-to-day basis. We can do that through focus groups, key informant interviews. We have done some really large random sample surveys with really focused on a response rate. We don't just want those home care workers who have an interest or who have the time to respond to a survey because we know they're not like the larger population and that might impact our results. So we really work hard to have robust survey data and other types of data, often qualitative, to really build a picture and a context for our population. And that helps us understand um, where there are gaps that we can leverage to provide services. 
Yeah, and I would just add that, you know, through a lot of that work, both qualitative and quantitative research that we've been conducting, along with some of the lit reviews, we really hope to understand not just our population of Washington State, but hope that the things that we're doing can help inform the way that other states are approaching the care for and, and the professionalization of the home care field for them as well. But for example, amongst our population, you know, we know that about 85% are women, age over 50 years old. Kind of interesting stats like 85% of them have smartphones. So a lot of times there's some misconceptions about how adept the population is with technology. They're definitely on top of it. We know 25% or more don't speak English as a primary language. So we have to consider all of these variables in how we approach any one of our pilots or trials and, and how we're sort of intervening with the population. But we also see that they have higher than normal instances of depression, anxiety, musculoskeletal issues, the adverse childhood events, obesity, diabetes, on-the-job injury, hypertension. So these are all things that we can really start to focus in on and say, how do we make some proper interventions? So give me an example of how you picked one of those topics and started to move on it. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk. One of the things that Pablo mentioned was adverse childhood events. So adverse childhood events are events that happen in a person's life before the age of 18 and are traumatic. Could be the loss of a parent, the divorce of a parent, physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. And there is a really rich body of literature that shows that children who experience these events and a higher number of these events are correlated with later life difficulties, not just in behavioral health, but also in chronic diseases like diabetes. And this even predicts mortality. We're seeing home care workers at the age of 18 are often much older. We can't take a time capsule back and, and change events that somebody had no control over. They may have caused trauma, but we know that having these events and having a disproportionate number of these events in life can cause later life health impacts. And so our question was, is it possible that home care workers who are generally, when you look at them as a large population, a picture of health disparity in many ways, have a higher prevalence of obesity, diabetes, heart disease, musculoskeletal. We see it when we compare our population to the book of business for our insurers. And so we did one of those really robust surveys where we looked at adverse childhood events. We also measured some factors that can mitigate these events around resiliency. And we looked at the prevalence of these events and their national and state data telling us what we might expect the prevalence to be. Um, So for instance, it's considered a very high risk threshold to have four or more of these events in childhood. And nationally, about 14% of Americans have four or more of these events. And we found in home care workers, it was much higher, 28%. And so that answered our question that There is a higher risk here of all the outcomes associated with adverse childhood events. And this is an area where we can leverage being trauma-informed in our approach to our work with home care workers and focusing on programs that can build resiliency that can help mitigate the impact of these early life events. So did you guys develop a program around that? We are in the process of developing a program around that. So I don't have one to share. I think another example where I could give you kind of the soup to nuts um, building a program would be around obesity, very similar to disparities in other areas. We see a disparity in obesity and morbid obesity for home care workers. And so we thought about how to address that. 
And we actually spent really a full year informative research looking at programs that were out there. And one of the things we realized very early on was that a program that had people meet in person was probably going to lead to feasibility problems, not just for those home care workers who are outside of urban cores where it's difficult to offer those types of programs, but also because home care workers are often on the job, nonstop, unpredictable schedules overnight. It's hard to have them come somewhere in person. So we looked at a variety of virtual diabetes prevention programs that are also focused on weight loss. And we basically put home care workers in rooms with focus groups, and we showed them clips of the programs. We showed them some of the spokespersons from the programs. And we're really trying to say, hey, is, is this a relatable program? And it was really interesting what we learned. Some of the predictors we thought might predict whether a home care worker felt that the program was relatable or realistic, things like race or sex or age were, were not predictive. But the one thing that home care workers told us over and over again is that what makes someone relatable is having a life like theirs. So if the spokesperson was a football player, for instance, they would say, hey, you know, that guy has a million dollars and can bring in a personal chef. And my life is not like that. That program won't work for me. And the program that we felt was the best fit from their feedback was a program called Retrofit. And it's an online virtual diabetes prevention program. Each member gets a coach leading him or her through the program for six months, and then ultimately there's an option to add on support. And so in the fall of 2016, we rolled that out and we followed home care workers for six months, and the results were excellent. Almost half lost 5% or more of their total body weight. We measured biomarkers like hemoglobin A1C in a small proportion of the population, and we saw that move as well. People really liked the program. And so at the end of six months, we said, wow, what will happen if, if we stop doing this? And we decided we should find out if it mattered, if six months was enough. We know that losing weight is incredibly hard, but maintaining a weight loss is almost universally harder. So we divided the group into three groups. One continued with the program and their coaching as usual. The other had asynchronous contact with their coach just via email interface. And the last group only had the virtual access to the website with no personal contacts. The difference really was in having support and not having support. Didn't matter if it was email or video, but that support mattered. So we're just this week rolling out a second round of retrofit where we're going to measure more biomarkers. We're going to give home care workers a full year of support, and we're really excited about seeing the results of that. And so I think that's a great example of, uh, of the type of program where we can look at different screening tools to start to understand the population and what kind of interventions we might deploy. Sometimes we can look at our aggregated health insured program and, and see where there are disparities in our population. And then really, I mean, truthfully, at the end of the day, we owe a lot of credit to the entire team, to our former executive director, Carissa Rayner, who I think did a really phenomenal job. And, and all of us have done a phenomenal job of just cultivating a culture of curiosity here and asking the right questions and saying, you know, are these things that we can successfully come up with an intervention strategy for? And then how do we go out there, design a pilot, test it, and then measure the right metrics like Leslie was talking about, biometrics or otherwise, to actually understand whether or not we're successfully intervening in a health condition that we could improve for home care workers. That is a terrific example. I'm just deeply impressed by how you approach people where they are, engage them right from the start in what you think is going to be the right thing, but asking them. That, that level of respect to me just sounds like such a high probability pathway to success. As I think about 
the lessons others might learn. You know, imagine I'm a healthcare delivery system accepting a risk contract to manage population. And, and I'm hoping they listen to this and they can learn lessons because of how you've approached the population with whom you work. What lessons have you learned? Are there any things that you would recommend that they think about as, as they try to replicate what you're doing? I think one thing I would say is that all feedback is good feedback, even when it's counterintuitive and a little bit surprising. An example of this is is really focused on those musculoskeletal injuries. And as I dug into the literature, it became clear to me that having people lift people was dangerous, that there really was not a clear best practice that could make this safe. You know, I think that somebody might walk into a home with a morbidly obese client and see that as a risk, but it wasn't always the case with someone who was a normal weight client, and yet the risk was there. And so really focused a lot of my work on how can we get a mechanical lift, like a Hoyer lift, into the home. And when I started asking home care workers about this, I was really surprised to learn that many of them had lifts in the home that weren't being used. Certainly many were trying to get lifts and weren't able to access them, but there were really a few different barriers here that I hadn't recognized, and that was really surprising to me. And so I said, why aren't you using it? And they said, you know, our client is is really afraid of that lift. Being dangled in the air is scary to him or her. And, you know, I haven't been trained on this machine. And so... I don't really want to use it either. And so a lot of the barriers we thought were the barriers running in to solve the problem and come to a solution rather than sort of focusing, we say around here, loving the problem before we jump to solutions has been really important. And it's helped me learn that that all feedback, even sometimes the feedback I don't want to hear is really good feedback and moves us forward. And I would say that uh, the secret sauce to the success that we're really finding here, in my mind, is A, that we're a self-insured health fund. I think that that is really, really critical to freeing your data and then being able to analyze it and run small experiments to understand what the right intervention strategies are. So that would definitely be one thing I would highly recommend. And then, of course, if you're ever able to find an unbelievable epidemiologist like Leslie, that's probably also the other half of the equation. (laughs) Just one more thing. Our formative research and feasibility and acceptability have been great. You know, if you have the best tool in the world and you can't get it out to your worker because there's some weird thing in the mail and P.O. boxes are not deliverable, it doesn't matter how good your tool is. So often just staying in that formative space can be a real learning experience. What do you mean by staying in the formative space? I really mean about the very, very early research. Before we get to, is this tool, is this intervention effective? Because it might be the best intervention in the world. Can we carry it out? Can we engage people with it? Is it something that's acceptable to their clients? An example of this right now, the leading cause of injury in home care workers is musculoskeletal and overexertion. But the second leading cause of injury is slip, trip, fall. And one of the questions we have is whether putting slip, trip-free graded shoes that have special traction and then have something on the toe of the shoe to prevent catching and falling, tripping and falling, can be effective in preventing the second leading cause of injury. But one of the formative research pieces we had to do is both, I think, culturally and somewhat geographically, Um, There are many homes in our part of the country where people take off their shoes when they enter the home. It's considered a sign of respect. It's considered a focus on cleanliness. There are many reasons why this might happen. And so if we're sending shoes out to home care workers, 
and their clients say, this is not acceptable to us, that's a formative research piece we can find out before we have hundreds or thousands of shoes out in the field that we're testing. And and in fact, that was a barrier, and it was a barrier we were able to negotiate. We now have 300 pairs of shoes on home care workers out in the field, and we're testing that. And what we've done is when home care workers encounter that barrier, we ask them to do one of two things. The first is have a discussion with their client about using those shoes only in the home. So they're not shoes that leave the home and come into the home, which is often a concern. And the second is if that's non-negotiable, there are lots of risk factors that home care workers encounter when they're taking out the trash, walking into a dark area at night where they can't see perhaps a change in elevation, ice, all those things that are outdoor hazards and having them wear the shoes just outside. But if we had rolled out those shoes without having that awareness first, there are a substantial number of home care workers that may not be wearing them. Wow, that is an excellent example. So tell me, if you you had like you, your dreams came true and you were able to do something, a study or a service uh, with your members, what would that be? It's really in that safety domain. This musculoskeletal injury for 50,000 people in 50,000 homes is a really hard nut to crack. And the things that are best practices in fields like nursing don't apply in home care because the context is so different. And so what I really want to know, because durable medical equipment is difficult to get, it doesn't always fit in the home, it can lead to a lot of fear, it's very expensive, is are there surrogates that are relatively inexpensive, portable, and effective that we can give to home care workers to keep them safe from musculoskeletal injuries. And there are two ways I've been thinking about approaching this. First are some of those low-tech portable tools I told you, using the example of rotation cushion, shoes is another example, and getting those out into the homes. In many cases, we have found that these tools are feasible and acceptable to home care workers and their clients. What we don't know is if they're effective. And that's a really big study for a really long period of time and to be determined, but we're hoping to do some of that work because that work has profound implications. If if you can find a tool that's really effective at helping someone lift and transfer and save their back, that's not a Hoyer lift and is safe for both the home care worker and client, that is a win. And, and we don't know if that tool exists. And if that tool exists, it hasn't been tested. There are a lot of low-tech tools that don't have a lot of research around it. And we've also been talking about partnering with institutions like the University of Washington, who has a whole engineering group who might be able to come out and watch us say, hey, it's really difficult for home care workers in buildings without elevators to help their clients up and down the stairs. And all we've got is a gate belt. Can you build us a prototype that we could test that can help with this difficult motion? And so those types of dreams are just in the formative stages, as I've used that word a lot lately, but we're really hoping that we can move forward with some of them. And I think often they're best practices in other areas of our work, behavioral health and chronic disease that apply well to home care workers. In safety, that's much less the case. And so it's the part I'm focused on is that musculoskeletal injury and being able to make a dent there would be an amazing outcome. My dream would be a, a bit more abstract, but I sort of base in the fact that I think that we have this fundamental challenge as a society that that is it's sort of a shame that we don't get more of this information but ultimately that home care workers really are creating these amazing baselines 
for the clients that they're serving. We've been out in the field and we've seen them, they've kept these journals, these long intricate journals about what kind of experiences their clients are having and what's normal and abnormal behavior. And uh, oftentimes in the primary care setting, the PCP doesn't really have insight into what that looks like. And so oftentimes we're jumping straight to sort of a prescriptive method of of treating whatever symptoms are occurring. And I think that there's this opportunity with the prevalence of uh, voice-enabled technologies that's coming, Alexa, Google Home, all these different things where we actually have a less clunky input mechanism that we can get home care workers to be able to verbally give some data that can hopefully get distilled down and then output the the right information to uh, PCP so that they can have a better understanding about what the conditions of those clients are. And I think that that does a couple of things. I think it can heavily reduce the burden on Medicaid for many of the clients that our home care worker populations are serving and the home care workers themselves. Uh, it, it elevates them and it shows the level of professionalism that they really are genuinely bringing to this field that we're just not taking advantage of right now as a society. Wow. Well, Pablo and Leslie, this is fascinating. I love what I'm hearing. And in, in, you know, just a few of the things that stand out to me as terrific are fail early and often. So I love that whole lean yes. approach to doing things. I love the degree to which you guys are engaging members and staying in that formative stage and not just resting on your assumptions, walking in, but really checking in. I like that you, you guys have access to information. I'm presuming that being self-insured, therefore you have the access to the claims information, which then helps you understand, is this ultimately having an impact? Is it leading to outcomes that are substantive and can help probably fund the work that you guys are doing? So I think that's that's absolutely terrific. And I'd like to invite you guys to send me some links that we could then post so folks who are listening can go to your website and look at the kind of results and be impressed and hopefully begin to replicate what you're doing. So Pablo and Leslie, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you, Gordon. It was a pleasure to be on. Thanks so much. For Inside Angle, this is Gordon Moore. You can find more podcast episodes at www.3mhisinsideangle.com dot com.